We're uh, in the middle of uh, a short series on the gospel, and uh, last week uh, we looked at uh, uh, an achievement that uh, when we're talking about the gospel, there was something that was uh, achieved, particularly by Jesus uh, on the cross. It wasn't just that he died for sins, there was an awful lot that went on. Uh, And this week we're looking at the gospel as a free gift, uh, already pinched by uh, Joanna Kinch, who was in danger of nicking my sermon. Did, did you? Yeah. So, if you've got a Bible, can you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 to 10? It's already there in Joanna Kinch's Bible. You've learned. <laughs> so, Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Uh, This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus uh, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Uh, In order to have a, a good understanding uh, of what is a Christian and what makes a Christian, I think there are no uh, better verses than these. It's my opinion, uh, and uh, you can uh, disagree with me as you wish, but I'm going to stick with what I think, okay? I think these are great. Paul earlier had prayed uh, in chapter 1, verse 18, prayed for the church. He prayed that, that they might have their eyes of their hearts or their eyes of their understanding enlightened. And he knows that the Ephesian church, or that he, he, he knows that if the Ephesian church can understand what God has done for them, that the possibilities for the gospel are unlimited. I don't know whether you've realized this yet, that some of our reticence in regards to salvation is found in the fact that even uh, although that we stand brave and courageous, that actually uh, it ha- the gospel hasn't affected us in a way that propels us. It's true. It is absolutely true. Because what we say is that, yes, I believe these things, but I don't believe it enough to go and do this. That's what happens. So that's what Paul's playing. How do we, you can see that? Um, you can also, I want you to just catch this, and I can say this because Phil Harmon is not here. He will listen to this. This is not a theological exercise for Paul. When Paul is praying that, he actually is praying out of his heart. He's, uh, he's, it's something that has captured him for these people. So it's not a theological exercise. It actually, for him, is practical. He believes that he wants the gospel to go right across the end of the earth. It is also uh, pastoral. He cares for these people to pray in this particular way. He's concerned for them. And the reason for that is that he knows this one thing, that if we can get hold of the gospel, it will actually change everything. And it does change everything. So what does Paul pray? And am I right? 
Paul prays, verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts or having the eyes of your understanding enlightened. To what? That you may know the hope to which he has called you. That's the important thing. When, when we're caught by the hope which we are an unstoppable train, then he goes on, what are the riches of his, of his glorious inheritance in the saints? See, we, we can't be stopped. Verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? How does that come towards us who believe? Can you see their trouble? And then can you see, therefore, our trouble? They didn't realize the power of God for those who believe. Belief hadn't empowered them, if you like. They were like us. They were just ordinary people. This is no great shakes church, although we can tend to think like that. They were having to live up to expectations given to them by men or other people. They had circumstances and events that were no different to yours that are defining them. So Paul prays what for them? That they might feel a little bit better and their circumstances might change? No. He prays, that he prays for them that they might catch hold of what God has done that because he knows that if I pray that for them, it will change everything. See, what you believe empowers you. What you don't believe disempowers you. Oh, that's the truth. I can't hide from that. You can squirm if you like. Let's do a Martin Lloyd-Jones then. Martin Lloyd-Jones was um, uh, a wonderful preacher, died now, uh, uh, moving just around post-war period, and he was famous for expository preaching. So he did loads of sermons, sometimes on one word. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, would do. He would preach things. So apparently there's a whole series of, of sermons on just two words, but God. And uh, that wasn't what Joanna Kinch did, but she did mention it. And uh, so here we'll do a Martin Lloyd-Jones thing, because these verses start off with the word for. And it says, for grace, by grace, you have been saved. You have to ask, what's the for for? The four-four is, and it refers to what has gone before. So it refers to verses 1 to 3, which Joanna read out, spelling out the awful condition of our hearts towards God. And then verses 4 to 7 in chapter 2, what God has done for us. The question being, the question, the four is simply this, how did all that happen? So 1 to 3 spells it out how awful we are. Four to seven tells us what God has done. And the four basically goes, well, how on earth did that happen then? Except the Apostle Paul does it better than us. He goes, four. And he tells us what has happened in all of those verses. And he says, this is a description of what has happened. For by grace you have been saved. Now, more and more, I'm just, I'm just getting old. I don't know whether you notice it. As you get older, you just go on a bit more about all sorts of different things. Now, um, Kelly knows that as I've got older, I've actually gone on 
less. She has gone on more, but I've actually gone on less. I went on all the way home on the way back. Yes, I did. I admit to that one, but that was only one day in 352. So, but anyway, listen, I've got the microphone, don't I? <laughs> what, what I'm still finding, and I'm still finding this, I, I now have this highfalutin job that, you know, really I shouldn't be doing about you know, where I, I, I'm now responsible for the region and if the Borderlands region. So if we don't turn up um, as, a, as a church to Borderlands, I'm in so trouble because I'm supposed to be leading you and the region. But when, when I talk to pastors and just, just sitting there and just talking to them and saying, OK, what are you facing? What are the issues? I'm more convinced that the troubles that we face stem from a lack of understanding of actually as what has happened to us and, and who has done it and why he's done it. I believe that actually if things are not right in the beginning, then we struggle to make things right after that. And we try and live out our Christian life having been birthed actually quite badly. And um, often when people sort of ring me up or talk to me and they say, we need to deal with this. And you go back and you can often find that it's an issue that was right back at the very beginning, that was never, ever dealt with. And often Christians live, don't they, with things that carry on through life. And, and when I, it's just that you're just talking to people, and you just go, have you ever taken them back to this, this point? And, and that's just something that as more and more as I've got older has happened. And you find that, you, I don't know whether you find this, that, uh, that people often make what I call loud arrivals into Christianity. <laughs> uh, and, and you see these things, don't you? You see people make a, a statement when they arrive into, into their faith. We've had a few here that stood up, we've all clapped. And yet we struggle, don't we, with the fact that they suddenly fade away. And you think, where did that go? How did that happen like that way? And, and you can see the things, well, they've been swamped with personal difficulties, they've got trials, it's difficult to work out the, the plan of what's going on, it's not quite um, going to plan. Uh, I've even known people blame the church and on great days they've blamed God. Um, and what you realize is that what has happened is there has never been a real clear understanding to what has happened in their life, their response to that, and who has done it. It seems to all come back to this one. Because if, if that mattered enough, then you don't do these things, do you? That matters enough. And so here... Before Paul takes, uh, uh, here, before us, Paul takes, remember a very effective church. Remember that. He's not talking to a duffer church. He's talking to a good church. Uh, a church that was actually described by Jesus. And the church is described in Revelation. It, it says this, it says, you have done incredible works. That's enough, isn't it? That would be great. You have, not only that, you have, can you imagine this? You have together toiled. Your imagination could go wild on what that would look like. But you give them a lot of congratulations, don't you? It goes on. Think about this. You have had patient endurance. 
You have resisted evil. You have tested false prophets. That would not, that's Phil Harmon. He does that job. You have, you, you've, uh, you have, you have been bearing up. That is a wonderful statement, I think. Very pastoral statement. You have not grown weary. Hallelujah. And yet, what he does with this church is he says, I'm going to take you back to the basics. And in Revelation, it says, you've lost your first love. So he takes them back to the foundational things. Because if we don't get that right and we don't get this right, you cannot build on top of it. It is a building that will collapse. The issue of what is foundational matters to Paul. So let's just do... Look, And I want to say this to you. You have heard all this before, okay? And probably better. So, don't, But please, can I ask you to just visit again? Because it's so important. So firstly, look, remember this, we're saved by God's grace. Let's remind ourselves. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved. What does grace mean? It means unmerited, undeserved favour has come to you. It's come your way. It is an action that arises because of the glorious character of God. <laughs> Salvation came to you from God's side only. What is more stunning about that is that it wasn't just that it came to us, it came to us in spite of ourselves. So knowing what God did know about you, he still came to you. It is unmerited favour that has come to you. Unmerited. You did not deserve it. In other words, God did not respond to anything that he saw, heard, or smelt in you at all. If you go back to verse 5, ably read by Joanna Kinch, which is my sermon, even when we were dead in our trespasses, <laughs> made alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You know this. We were dead. Our trespasses meant that we were dead. And as far as I know, that dead people are unable to respond to anything. You can't. It is an impossibility. You can't do that. When you're dead, you're dead. You're dead. Despite what the films tell you. Okay? There's nothing you to do. The sins mean that your only home, hear this, is either a mortuary or a graveyard. That's who you are. That's how the description is. You and I are graveyard, mortuary people. And life is going on elsewhere. And it says, we were made alive. The, uh, the old AV says that we were quickened by a work of Jesus. This was not something that you deserved. No, you were in the mortuary, you were in the grave because of what you were like. It was a deserved thing. 
We have no rights to salvation. We have no works to be impressed by. We deserve nothing but God's punishment, God's hell, God's banishment from his presence. And here's the wonderful statement that Martin Lloyd-Jones preaches sermons on. But God. It's no wonder you can preach sermons. Has the but God got you yet? Do you look at your coat and go, yeah, but God. Get up this morning and go, yeah, but God. Look in the mirror, but God. Tell you a little story this morning. Could have been thrown this morning. I don't know whether you know this yet, but we're often thrown by the little things. Because the little things... So, uh, here I am um, dreaming of sheep going over uh, little fences and things like this and, you know, rolling hills. And Callie wakes me. And, and she wakes me and she goes, we have no water. And I go, don't be so silly. Of course we have water. Water's natural, isn't it? And I've been walked home Friday night. I know water's natural. It just falls out of the sky. Of course it works. So she, she says, no, the toilets don't flush. Oh, God, toilets don't flush. Okay. So the, the toilet didn't flush. And the tap didn't go. So we had a plan. And Kelly said to me, this is the point that she said to me, do not go to the toilet. Now, I don't know whether that statement's ever been said to you, but as soon as you say, don't go to the toilet, you start, you start doing that business. Well, I have an urge. I go, do not. The thing is that she had been. But I was not allowed. And it, I just thought this morning, I just thought, because Kelly said to me, the only answer that we've got to this is that we can, if we've got any um, hot water in the kettle, we can boil it, we can have our breakfast, and, and as soon as we can, we can have to ring Tim and Rachel. We have to say to Tim and Rachel, we need to come. And I just realised that my whole life, in a moment, had just completely dropped out. Now, you might think, never happens to me. Liars. Because <laughs> it, and my whole life, because I just realised that, that my but God doesn't permeate my life. He just doesn't. But God, I was wondering, what on earth he's gone on here? Not only did that, I was rigging people. I must rig people. I must tell people, we've got no water. Do something about it. There's a bloke said, yes, the whole of South Sea and New Brown, you have no water. And I'm going, but I am different. I'm the pastor of a church. I've got to get up and preach. And then I kept thinking, I kept thinking, I'm going to stand here this morning with that bit like this. <laughs> uh, and to be honest, that's all I... See, see, Bill doesn't have this problem. See, that's the bonus of, of losing your hair because you don't have that bit. But the truth is that now I'm taking him back to his youth. He can remember when that happened. All I could think about was, I'm going to smell and my hair is going to stick up I'm going to look like this in front of you, but that's paid for. But God. Does the but God. Is it so wonderful that it has got to you? Does but God, going back a little, have you ever asked yourselves, what's the point of the horrible description of our nature in verses 1 to 3? Here's the, 
What does it describe? I always think it's the grim verses. Here's the grim verses. How should I look at myself? Let's just look at myself in the mirror, the mirror of the Bible. Okay, the mirror of the Bible says, Nigel, you are dead. That's bad enough. Really? Then it goes on, it says, Nigel, not only are you dead, but you follow the course of the world. The world is more important to you than me. Then it says, and also, you, there is a pull of evil to, in your nature. You are following the prince of the air. You are a son of disobedience. You respond, Nigel, to the passions of your flesh. You carry out the desires of your body. Not only your body, but the mind. You, you have been born a, ch- a child of wrath. And I go, ah. If you looked at this person, you'd say, this person does not deserve anything. You wouldn't give anything to that person, would you? But that person is you. The person, this person has no rights to be in the presence of God. But that person is you. What can you offer God? But God. Such amazing words at his initiative and because he is rich in mercy and because he has a great love, he what? Made us alive together with Christ. You know, if we don't get this, we're not going to get the rest. If this doesn't make a difference, what on earth is going to make a difference? How on earth do you think that you're going to do anything unless you get hold of this? We were dead. We had no life in all. We had no ability. We had no means to do anything but God. Can a dead man raise himself? No, it's impossible. It requires an action from another person because he can't do anything about his state. But God, bang, by grace you have been saved. Think about this. This is Paul saying this. Paul who hated Christians and hated the church. Good moral guy, but he did threatened and tortured and murdered them. And he looks back and he goes, now then, let's just evaluate my life. How does the Apostle Paul do it? He says, I, I am what I am by the grace of God. He's sort of, uh, he's stuck by it. It's, it's just a record. It's going on and on. I, I am what I am by the grace of God. And you can tell that because we know that because Paul says he was vile and he was horrible and he was hateful and he was disruptive. And, and he goes on and, he, and he, he does this. He writes to different people every now and again. He writes them a letter and he explains to them uh, about what has happened to him. Why? Because he wants them to understand what has happened to them. Because if they can grasp this, he knows that it is, it is an incredible power to those that believe that can affect a nation and nations. So he writes to Titus. Remember Titus, little old guy over there somewhere. He says to Titus in chapter 3, verses 3 to 5, For we ourselves were once foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures. We, we passed our days in malice and envy. We hated others. Uh, uh, we hated you. <laughs> uh, but when the goodness 
and the kindness of God our Saviour appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in us, uh, uh, by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. This was Paul's starting position for everything. Everything that I have had and been given is because of God's mercy towards me. What's your starting position for everything that you look at? Is everything uh, grace? I have been saved by grace. Now, if you've been saved by grace and grace has got to you, let me tell you some things that it affects. We haven't got time to go into that. Worship. Because grace tips the balance in regard to worship. How you serve. You want to serve him. Because you have been served outstandingly. You're eager to serve him. Not, well, I'm, I'm just on a serving rotor. No, we serve Jesus. Follow him. I want to do what he does. It shapes your home. Your home becomes a grace-filled home. You, you husband and you father by grace. That's how it works. You work by grace. Grace isn't how much money might I earn. Work is a privilege because it's a gift of God. It's, it's not about a career. It's about a gift that God has given you. And you look at it, you look at your employer, and you look at the, the words, you, and you think, no, everything is of grace. And Paul knows this, that if he, we can see everything by grace, including the car that you have, the home that you have, and incidentally, because mine died yesterday, the lawnmower that I just purchased, I will know this, that it is the gift of God. Because everything comes from grace. And if we don't get grace in at about the beginning, we don't view everything by grace. It is the free gift of God. Or it is says in there, it's the gift of God or the free gift of God. Salvation is offered as a free gift by a work of God's amazing grace. It's not of your own works uh, that you get it. It's given free. So Romans 6 verse 23, the wages of sin is death. I used to get frightened at that point when my pastor used to preach like the wages of sin is death. It was used to end there though. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Again, eternal life is given by God as a free gift. Get that. Just help yourself with that one. <laughs> you, you don't get eternal life by anything of your own works. But it is free. Have you got this yet? Ask the doctors and nurses about life. Or the medical people. The medical profession. Let's do that one. Whatever that's called. Life. You get eternal life because somebody wants to give it to you for now. Bah! You know, sometimes I think we, we sort of behave as if we've been given a bunch of flowers and a box of chocolates. You know, that's, oh, thank you, that's nice. Do I have to eat the cherry ones? It's sort of like, like that. You know, it's sort of, we, I, I don't know. 
you, you cannot get a more extravagant free gift ever. It's impossible. You can try. Steve Hawkins, who will listen to this sermon, showed me the new grill on his Mercedes <laughs> this week. He drove it up and he said to me, that I don't care a fig. If you listen to this, Steve, if it happened to me, I wouldn't care, I wouldn't care a fig. But a stone hit the How dare a stone hit the grill of the green Mercedes? But it did, and it chipped a little bit out. Do you think I'm bothered? No, I don't. But Steve replaced it. So on his arrival at our house, he says to me, would you like to see my new grill? <laughs> and you've got to answer that thing, haven't you? You've got to go, yes. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to see the grill. Yeah, it's really nice. I like the grill. Yes, like And you just come, you just think, and you think, ah. And then you go, eternal life sort of comes in. You know, what, what do you get? Flowers, box of chocolates, new grill, eternal life. No, not ever, folks. Not ever. You cannot be given a more extravagant gift or actually a more perfect gift. It is perfect in absolutely ever uh, as it was. It was Power's birthday yesterday. Power's 39. And I was 19. And I noticed that when I was up this morning, this is before I was washed, looking at this sermon, panicking. And I was thinking that Power yesterday had some flowers. And she had some, you know, and, and the plants and all sorts of different things that smell nice and look nice, although she doesn't like pink. But, uh, but there were pink stuff in it. And it was just really interesting. The, the things that we sort of live in excitement for, the Bible tells us that they, they fade and they rot. And the Bible tells us that. But we live as if they are permanent and this is not. <laughs> Dear. And yet, what I want to say to you is this. It is free to you, but it's not a free gift as you know it. To give you a free gift, it cost. And the cost was Jesus. You got it free, but actually it was not free. Romans 5, verses 6 to 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person, one ought to dare to even die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was not that free. 1 John 4, uh, 4 9 to 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest amongst us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And in, uh, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Remember, when you look at the free gift that you have got, the free gift of the eternal life, it cost for you to have it. It isn't free as you, it's free to receive, but it costs to give you. So it cost the Father he lost his one and only son. The father gave. It cost the father. 
It says, God did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us. That's quite a decision for a father to make, isn't it? Yeah, Mark, for your daughter? It's hard, isn't it, to even contemplate. I give up my daughter. Cool. We just, it's just easy come, easy go, isn't it? Think about it. It cost Jesus himself. Think about the Philippians passage. Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the value changes. It costs the Holy Spirit. I love this because I can see how this has worked in my life. Paul's writing to the Thessalonians. He says, But we ought to always give thanks for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just think, when you think about it, through the sanctification, the work of the Holy Spirit, think of the work of the Holy Spirit through your life to bring you to the point of salvation. Let's just say this. It wasn't easy, was it? You resistant lot. Wasn't it? Think of the Holy Spirit working on you. Every time, you know, feeding that scripture in you. And you, you go, no, not in that. You know, come in with that, you know, again and again and again. And, you know, you, you got in angry because not only has Mark witnessed to you and you've resisted that, but then some other pillock from down the town has given you a tract and you were resisting that. And somebody said to you, please come to this meeting. And you go, no, I'm not having any of that. And the Holy Spirit is going, and I'm not giving up. And eventually, suddenly, in a meeting, when everybody else around you is praying for you, and you know it, and you're that one non-Christian person, and every eye is boring into you, the Holy Spirit convicts you and you get saved. When did the Holy Spirit start working? Before the foundation of the world. Ah, it's magnificent. Not only did it begin before eternity, but for 2,000-something years, the Holy Spirit has been working to get you to the point that you are right now. And there's this little verse that says in this, and the Bible says, and we grieve him. I just think that he's got a lot to be upset with with my behavior. Hasn't he? Rightly so. Because every time he comes again and says, look, you know, I'm trying to conform you, shape you, whatever, and you go, no, not having that. Not having it. And he just goes, it's been like this from the flipping beginning with this lot. It's the Holy Spirit coming through. The, the, each person of the triune Godhead paid dearly. How dare we behave as we do? Thank you is inadequate, isn't it? Really? Oh, we ought to be bursting. So he then goes on and he says, Therefore, uh, no boasting, not as a result of your works, so that no man can boast. Everyone 
Uh, everything we have in, in entirety or, uh, and solely is because of work of grace. That gives us no grounds to boast. <laughs> and Paul endorses this statement. He said, this is not of your own doing. Then he pushes it so that no one can boast. This is a crucial test of Christianity. Really crucial. And uh, of what makes us a Christian. How do you think about you? What is your view of you? That is really important. Was it dependent on what you did, well, a little bit? I still think there's a, there's a little bit of that that likes to remain in us all. So we do, we, we sort of have this sort of thing that, you know, we don't think that we're just rubbish. We, there's got to be something in there. Surely there's something. And you could say this and you say, we do that and say, well, you know, I can understand Mark, for instance, where he came from, because, you know, rough, rough, rough guy, you know, stuck needles in his, <laughs> stuck needles in his arms, you know, tattoos on it. Understand that completely. But, you know, compared with Mark, actually, I, I was quite a, a good person compared with, you know, come on. I was, I was good. <laughs> I, I, I am. I've always been a moral person. I've, you know, I, I, I have instinctively helped old ladies to cross the road, whether they wanted to or not. <laughs> I, I, I have always given to to charity, particularly, you know, when it comes on the telly. You know, I, my credit card is out. If a little animal comes to my double-glazed window and pushes its nose against my window uh, and offers just a little wine, I will be out there with a saucer of milk for it. I am, I am the hedgehog rescuer as, as they cross the roads, fearing as I lie in my bed what might happen to them. I go out there and lift them up, even though they're going the other way. I have never been in trouble with the police. I've not had a fight at school. I'm an okay type of person. And I think at some level that exists quite reasonably in us all. It's a good, honest test. You know this because some people say to you, Nigel, um, surely there are some redeeming features in me. And even by using that statement, it means, uh, if you've heard that before, redeeming virtues, that means that there's something in you that's worth purchasing. And of course, redeeming features, although we use it as a statement, is actually linked to salvation. So that means that I can save myself. Paul, when he was writing to Rome, said this uh, in chapter 3, verses 27. He said, Then what becomes of our boasting It is to be excluded. If we're going to be great followers of God, we have to be, we have to be wondrous in what God is and honest in regard to ourselves. It means that boasting has to be shut out. There's no room for it. Remember Paul, he said in Philippians, he said, Though I, I myself uh, uh, for, uh, have reason for confidence in the flesh, he said, if anyone thinks he has reason and confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
He, he said, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisees. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel. He was proud of his religion. He was moral. He was proud of his knowledge. He describes himself as zealous and blameless. And then writing to the Philippians, uh, he says, I, I've not only done these things, it's wonderful, I love this bit, I've not only done these things, I've excelled in these things. And then he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In, in, instead, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. The word for loss is dung. If, if you want to listen to a previous sermon of, by David Simpkins on that word, you can find another word that David Simpkins, it's still on the internet. Okay? Um, and that's left you all going, and Rupert can remember it. So he's right. So the word is dung, and I'm not going any further. He's not consent. He's not just content to say I am wrong. He he's only content to say I am vile and I am filthy. Filthy. You see, it is really important. Because many of us think that we're not really that bad. And when we go down that line, it demeanors the work of grace and the cross. It elevates us. And it means that there will always be a problem with self-esteem. All the connection. Do you get the connection? Because somehow I've got to feel something in me that feels good. No, you have God esteem. What God esteem is, no, you are rubbish. But the life of Christ has come into you. And it's God that says who you are in him. You have nothing to bring to the table. He brings everything to the table. And that's why boasting is excluded. And if you go down that line of just bringing that little bit in, it will always bring, you will always bring this sort of pressure with self-esteem that will come through. No, you bought nothing. God bought everything. That's the wonder of it all. No boasting. That means we are saved by a work of God. For we are his workmanship. Now, I want you to get in a little bit the magnitude of that statement. It's God who is working. It's not our work. It's not our efforts. It's not our decision for Christ. Hate that. I made a decision for Christ. No, you didn't. He knocked you off your feet. So it works. <laughs> a Christian is a person on whom God has worked and has been working from eternity. You just have to be born at this time. Come through. He's been working on you. Look further into these verses and Paul says that we are created for good works. What has happened to us is on the scale and magnitude of creation itself. That's what Paul is saying here. <laughs> he is the one who is in you. That's part of the, what the wonder of it is that Jesus Christ is placed inside this foolish frame. And you just think, what? So when you go, and you hear these people say, that's why you take the very Jesus with you. Whatever you do, that Jesus goes with you. You can't sort of say, oh my goodness. I've got the, we have the life of God in us. Well, I think it's magnificent. Like, 
A Christian is not just somebody that believes certain things and does some moral things or does certain duties. And you can be excellent in those things, but actually that's what the Pharisees did and they got told off for that. It's God that makes you a Christian and he does it his way, out of nothing, giving you his nature, making you a new man. Christians, new creations. It's sort of a moment. Is Think about it. For we are his workmanship. I think we, what did he, what we, he paints the sky. I was just thinking about this. What is it? Fists of clay. What? What did I bring? Just a blob. What did God do? Formed it. Nice nose. Well, not so good, but, but sorry. It just did. Not only did he make, can you see the wonder? He didn't just make something. He put his life in it. He didn't just go, okay, make that. Put that there. Poor, yes, people go and visit in London. Madame Tussauds. It's dead. What he said is, I'll make it and I'll put my life in it. That's the wonder of it. Extraordinary. It's just, just think of this as, oh, no, don't think of it any longer. Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8. Oh, love it. Christ Jesus. Oh, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of servant, being in form like this of man, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. Wow. So the question is, what are the good works that we're created to do? Maybe the question is, whose works? Well, they're God works because he has created them in advance. They're not your works, they're his. God hasn't created your works, he's created his works. Let me explain that. Because now, so therefore, if we're in Christ, God's works are the works of his son. So when you read that passage again, you say, okay, Philippians chapter 2, what does that look like? It means that, that I have been created to give myself to others and, to, and without counting the cost. I am in Christ. I've been created by him for his works. So now I am sacrificially giving myself to other people. Created to put on what? Ephesians 4, verses 24. To put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Created for an occasional bit of goodness on a rotor. No. Created for eternal holiness and righteousness, all time, everywhere. We could go on with verses that like this. Created to be blameless. Can, created to be conformed to the image of the likeness of his Son. What is Christianity other than Christ is in you and coming from you? That's what it is. Christ is in you and therefore breaking out from you. We are the representation of Christ on earth. Thank him and serve him because it's all of grace. If it were not of grace, then we would all keep on failing, I believe. But because it's grace, we can confidently say that I'm God's workmanship I know God will do the rest of it. He will keep on working on me. <laughs> I'm still in his hands. 
He started working in you. So we will bring it of, to a completion. But what is that work like for you and I? And we'll finish on this. And Joe can uh, choose uh, a song. Uh, in four lines you've got, Joe. Of course, he will chastise you. He will knock the corners off you. He will change you. Things will not be easy. It will be painful. It will be hard. And of course, inside of this is also a resistance to faith, to church, to God, to life. Think about this. He is on a mission, God is, to change you and to conform you into the likeness of his Son, And what on earth did he start with? He's got ages to go yet. And of course, that process, every time we get to something, it is a painful battle in regard to our character. Being conformed is not easy. I know what it's like as a, a parent to be conformed, to ask your children to be conformed. Because we've tried this with our children. What you do with the children is that you say to them, Rachel and Amy, you will be conformed to this. And you can see on their little faces that the, you might think that, that you are conformed to this. We might be wearing this. But see in here, we hate this. It's true. And my laugh is this with my kids. Ha ha. We will be grandparents and it'll be all over to you. So we will just go home. You know, conforming. I don't know why we think that when conforming to Jesus is going to be easy. Everything that you have in life that you face is about conforming you to your son, to him. And it won't be easy. (laughs) You have to remember, even when you do that, you have to say, I'm in the plan, it just hurts. That's what you have to do. Think about it. When, when he says, I want to remove every spot and wrinkle from you. That's hard, isn't it? It's like getting the iron out on your face. It's just not easy. I want, I want to help you stand faultless. Yeah? I want to help you do that. I'm going to, come on, guys. We're just going to help you to be faultless. And you go, oh, look, at, look at all the faultless. You know, make a list. These are when I know. Remember this. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. But far be it from me uh, to boast, accepting anything but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's, fine. That's Paul's final challenge this morning. Paul's final challenge is, I will let the cross dominate everything that I am. And the world, I will crucify it. Where are you with the grace of God? By grace you've been saved. Let me pray that that, that statement alone will, think, will shape who you are and what you do. Amen.